cave in the mountain by edward ellis chapter one a strange guide well if he doesn't beat any one i ever heard of mickey o'rooney and fred munson were stretched on the apache blanket carefully watching the eyes of the wild beast whenever they showed themselves and had been talking in guarded tones the irishman had been silent for several minutes when the lad asked him a question and received no answer when the thing was repeated several times he crawled over to his friend and as he expected found him sound asleep this was not entirely involuntary upon the part of mickey he had shown himself on more than one occasion to be a faithful sentinel when serious danger threatened but he believed that there was nothing to be feared on the present occasion and as he was sorely in need of sleep he concluded to indulge while the opportunity was given him sleep away old fellow said fred you seem to want it so bad that i won't wake you up again the boy's curiosity having been thoroughly aroused all tendency to slumber upon his part had departed and he determined that if there was any way by which he could profit any by that wolf he would do it he may hang around here for a day or two he mused as he heard the faint tappings upon the sand thinking all the time that he'll get a chance to make a meal off of us so he will if we don't keep a bright lookout it seems to me that he might be driven out the more he reflected upon the suggestion of his own the more reasonable did it become his plan was to drive out the wolf to compel him to show up as a card-player might say considering the dread which all wild animals have of fire the plan was simple and would have occurred to any one the campfire seems to be all out but there must be some embers under the ashes mickey threw down his torch somewhere near here carefully raking off the ashes with a stick he found plenty of coals beneath these were brought together and some of the twigs laid over the heat causing them at once to burst into a crackling flame this speedily radiated enough light for his purpose which was simply to find one of those fat pieces of pine which make the best kind of torches a few minutes search brought forth the one he needed and then shoving his revolver down in his belt he was ready the light revealed the large beautiful apache blanket stretched out upon the ground while the irishman lay half upon it and half upon the earth sleeping as soundly as if in his bed at home beyond him and in every direction was the blackness of night but looking to his right he discovered the two eyes staring at him and glowing like balls of fire the animal was evidently puzzled at the sight before him fred dreaded a shot from the indians above and as soon as he had his torch ready and had taken all his bearings he drew the ashes over the sputtering flame save for the torch all was again wrapped in impenetrable gloom the glowing orbs were still discernible and holding the smoking torch above his head fred began moving slowly toward them the animal did not stir until the lad was within twenty feet when the latter concluded that it would be a good thing for him also to take a rest wonder if he's been trained not to be afraid of torches mused the little fellow i hope he hasn't 
and I hope, too, there won't be any trouble in scaring him. The lad dreaded another possibility, that his torch might be suddenly extinguished. If that should go out, leaving them in utter darkness, the wolf would immediately rise to a superior plane and speedily demonstrate who was master of the situation. Fred swung the torch several times around his head until it was fanned into a bright flame, after which he resumed his advance upon his foe. At the very first step the beast vanished. He had wheeled about and made off in a twinkling. The lad pressed onward at the same deliberate gait, watching carefully for the reappearance of the guiding orbs. It was not long before they were observed, a dozen yards or so further on. The wolf was manifestly retreating. He had no fancy for that terrible torch bearing down on him, and he was falling back by forced marches. This being precisely what Fred desired, he was greatly encouraged. He is making his way out, and after a while he will reach the place, and away he'll go. If he's a wolf or a fox, the hole may be so small that Mickey can't squeeze through, but I think I can follow one of the animals anywhere. After going some distance further, Fred noticed that the animal was not proceeding in a straight line. He would appear on his right, where he would stare at the advancing torch until it was quite close, when he would scamper off to the left and go through the same performance. "'He knows the route better than I do, so I won't try to disturb him,' reflected the boy as he followed up his advantage with high hopes of discovering the secret which was so important to himself and friend. "'I won't crowd him too hard, either, for I may scare him off the track and fail.' The wolf was evidently a prey to curiosity, the same propensity which has caused the death of many bipeds and quadrupeds. The action of the torch puzzled him, no doubt. He had seen fire before, and probably had been burnt, so he knew enough to give it a wide berth. But it is doubtful whether he ever saw a flaring torch held over the head of a boy and solemnly bearing down upon him. Fred's absorbing interest in the whole affair made him wholly unmindful of the distance he was traveling. He had already advanced several hundred yards, and had no idea that he was so far away from his slumbering friend. The fact was that the singular cave was only one among a thousand similar ones found among the wilds of the west and southwest. Its breadth was not great but the distance which it ran back into the mountains was amazing. The wolf was leading the lad a long distance from the camp, and what was more important, and which fact unfortunately Fred had failed to notice, the route was anything but a direct one. It could not have been more sinuous or winding. The course of the cavern, in reality, was as winding as that of the ravine in which he had effected his escape from the Apaches, and from which it seemed he had irrevocably strayed. Had he attempted to make his return, he would have found it impossible to rejoin Mickey O'Rooney unless the two should call and signal to each other. However, the attention of the lad was taken up so entirely with the task he had laid hold of, and which seemed in such a fair way of accomplishment, that he took no note of his danger. The wolf was leading him forward as the ignis fatuous lures the wearied traveller through the swamps and thickets to renewed disappointment. 
He has some way of reaching the outer world which the Indians haven't been able to find. Of course not, for if they knew, they would have been in here long ago. They wouldn't stay fooling around that opening where they're likely to get a shot from Mickey when they ain't expecting it. Now if the wolf will only behave himself, all will come out all right. Fearful of being caught with an extinguished torch, the lad kept up the practice of swinging it rapidly round his head every few minutes. When he ceased each performance, the flame was so bright that he was able to penetrate the darkness much further upon every hand. On one or two of these occasions he caught a glimpse of the creature as it bounded away into the darkness. In shape and action it was so much like the mountain wolves which had besieged him some nights before that all doubts were removed. He knew it was one of those terrible animals beyond question. "'Wonder how it is he's alone. It wasn't long after I saw that old fellow the other night when there was about fifty of them under the tree.' One of them is enough for me, if he doesn't give us the slip. Maybe he has come in to find out how the land lies and is going back to report to the rest." Fred could not help reflecting every few minutes on the terrible situation in which he would be should his torch fail and the other bring a pack of ravenous creatures about him. They would make exceedingly short work of a dozen like him. It seems good for hours yet he said as he held it before him and examined it for the twentieth time. The stick was a piece of limb, about as thick as his arm and fully a yard in length. It felt as heavy as lignum vitae, and by looking at the end held in his hand, and that which was burning, it could be seen that it was literally supercharged with resin, so much so that after being cut it had overflowed and was sticky on the outside. No doubt this, with others, had been gathered for that express purpose, and there was no reason to doubt its capacity. As Fred advanced, he caught occasional glimpses of the jagged overhanging rocks which in some places were wet, the water dripping down upon him as he passed. The fact, too, that more than once both sides of the cave were visible at the same time told him that the dimensions of their prison were altogether different from what he had supposed. "'There must be an end of this somewhere,' he muttered, beginning to suspect that he had gone quite a distance. "'And I'm getting tired of this tramping. I hope the wolf hasn't gone beyond the door he came in by, and I hope he has nearly reached it, for it will take me some time before I can find my way back to Mick.'" End of Chapter 1 Chapter 2 alone in the gloom. Before Fred could complete the sentence, his foot struck an obstruction and he was precipitated headlong over and down a chasm which had escaped his notice. He fell with such violence that he was knocked senseless. When he recovered, he was in darkness, his torch having been extinguished. The smell of the burning resin recalled him to himself, and it required but a moment for him to remember the accident which had befallen him. For a time he scarcely dared to stir, fearing that he might pitch headlong over some precipice. He felt of his face and hands, but could detect nothing like blood. The boy had received quite a number of severe bruises, however, and when he ventured to stir there were sharp stinging pains in his shoulders, neck, and legs. "'Thank God I am alive!' was his fervent ejaculation after he had taken his inventory. 
but I don't know where I am or how I can get back again. I wonder what has become of the torch. He could find nothing of his flambeau, although he was confident that it was near at hand. Fred believed that he had fallen about twenty feet, striking upon his chest and shoulders. At this juncture he thought of the wolf which had drawn him into the mishap, and he turned his head so suddenly to look for him that the sharp pain in his neck caused him to cry out. But nothing of the beast was to be seen. Maybe he went over here ahead of me and got killed, he thought. But I don't think that can be, for a wolf is a good deal sprier than a boy can be, and he wouldn't have tumbled down as I did. Fred recollected that he had several matches about him, and he carefully struck one upon the rock beside him. The tiny flame showed that he had stumbled into a rocky pit. It was a dozen feet in length, some three or four in width, and when he stood erect his head was level with the surface of the ground above. In consequence, it would be a very easy matter for him to climb out whenever he chose to do so, but above all things he was desirous of regaining his torch. Just as the match between his fingers burned out, he caught sight of it, lying a short distance away. "'It's queer what became of that wolf,' he said to himself as he recovered the precious faggot and painfully climbed up out of the pit. Maybe he thought I was killed and went off to tell the rest of his friends so that they can all have a feast over me. I must fire up the torch as soon as I can, for I am likely to need it. This did not prove a very difficult matter on account of the fatness of the torch, which ignited readily and quickly spread into the same thick smoking flame as before. But Fred noted that it was about half burned up and he could not expect it to hold out many hours longer, as it had already done good service. "'I wish I could see the wolf again,' he said to himself, looking longingly around in the darkness, "'for I believe he entered the cave somewhere near here, and it was a great pity that I had the accident just at the moment I was about to learn all about it.' He moved carefully about the cave, and soon found that he had reached the furthest limit, Less than twenty feet away it terminated, the jagged walls shutting down and offering an impassable barrier to any further progress in that direction. All that he could do, after completing his search, was to turn back in quest of his friend Mickey. The belief that he was in the immediate neighborhood of the outlet delayed the lad's return until he could assure himself that it was impossible to find that for which he was hunting and which had been the means of his wandering so far away from camp. Fred occupied fully an hour in the search. Here and there he observed scratches upon the surface of the rocks in some places. He was confident that they had been made by the feet of the wolves, but in spite of these encouraging signs he was baffled in his main purpose, and how the visitor made his way in and out of the cave remained an impenetrable mystery. "'Too bad, too bad,' he muttered with a great sigh. "'I shall have to give it up after all. I only wish Mickey was here to help me. I will call to him so that he will be sure to hear.' As has been intimated in another place, the two friends had a code of signals understood by both. When they were separated by quite a distance and one wished to draw the other to him, he had a way of placing two of his fingers against his tongue and emitting a shrill screech, which might well be taken for the scream of a locomotive whistle so loud and piercing was its character. 
When the lad uttered his signal, he was startled by the result. A hundred echoes were awakened within the cavern, and the uproar fairly deafened him. It seemed to him that ten thousand little imps were perched all around the cavern with their fingers thrust in their mouths, waiting for him to start the tumult when they joined in with an effect that was overwhelming and overpowering. "'Good gracious!' he gasped. "'I never heard anything like that. I thought all the rocks were going to tumble down upon my head, and I believe some must have been loosened.' He looked apprehensively at the dark, jagged points overhead, but they were as grim and motionless as they had been during the many long years that had rolled over them. "'Mickey must have heard that, if he's anywhere within twenty miles,' he concluded. But if such was the case, he sent back no answering signal, as was his invariable custom, when that of his friend reached him. Fred listened long and attentively, but caught no reply. "'I guess I'll have to try it again,' he added, with a mingled laugh and shudder. "'I think these walls can stand a little more such serenading.' He threw his whole soul in the effort, and the screeching whistle that he sent out was frightful, followed as it was by the innumerable echoes. It seemed as if the walls took up the wave of sound as if it were a football, and hurled it back and forth from side to side, and up and down in furious sport. The dread of losing his torch alone prevented the lad from throwing it down and clapping his hands to his ears to shut out the horrid din. Some of the distant echoes coming in after the others were exhausted gave an odd dropping character to the volleys of sound. Had the expected reply of Mickey been the same as the call to him, the lad would have been deceived thereby, for the echoes, as will be understood, were precisely the same as answering whistles uttered in the same manner. But Fred understood that if the Irishman heard him, he would reply with a series of short signals such as are heard on some railroads when danger is detected. But none such came, and he knew, therefore, that the ears which he intended to reach were not reached at all. "'I don't understand that,' he mused perplexedly, "'unless he's asleep yet. When I left him it didn't seem as though he'd wake up in a week. Perhaps he can hear me better if I shout.' A similar racket was produced when the boy strained his lungs, but his straining ear could detect no other result. It never once occurred to Fred that he and his friend were separated by such a distance that they could not communicate by sound or signal, and yet such was the case, he having travelled much further than he suspected. Having been forced to the disheartening conclusion that it was impossible to find the outlet by which the wolf had escaped, Fred had but one course left. That was, to find his way back to the campfire in the shortest time and by the best means at his command. If the mountain would not go to Mohammed, then Mohammed would have to go to the mountain. The lad began to feel that a great deal of responsibility was on his shoulders. The remembrance of Mickey O'Rooney going to sleep was alarming to him. He looked upon him as one regards a sentinel who sinks into slumber when upon duty. Knowing the cunning of the redskins, Fred feared that they would discover the fact and descend into the cave in such numbers that escape would be out of the question. And then again suppose that their enemies did not disturb them. What was to be their fate? 
The venison in the possession of the Irishman would not last a great deal longer, and when that was gone no means of obtaining food would be left. What were the two prisoners then to do? Mickey had hinted to Fred what his intention was, but the lad felt very little faith in its success. It appeared like throwing life away to make such a foolhardy attempt to reach the outside as diving into a stream of water from which there was no withdrawal, and the length of whose flow beneath the rock could only be conjectured, with all the chances against success. But Fred recalled in what a marked manner Providence had favored him in the past, and he could but feel a strong faith that he would still hold him in his remembrance. "'I wouldn't have believed I could go through all that I have had in the last few days, and yet God remembered me, and I am sure he will not forget me so long as I try to do his will.' On the eve of starting he fancied he heard a slight rustling on his right, and he paused, hoping that the wolf would show himself again, but he could not discern anything and concluded that it was the dropping of a stone or fragment of earth. The lad was further pleased to find, upon examination, that the revolver in his possession was uninjured by his fall. In short, the only one that had received any injuries was himself, and his were not of a serious character, being simply bruises, the effect of which would wear off in a short time. "'I hate to leave here without seeing that wolf,' he said, as he stood hesitating, with his torch in hand. "'He may be sneaking somewhere among these rocks, popping in and out whenever he has a chance. And if I could only get another sight of him, I would stick to him until he told me his secret.' He awaited a while longer, but the hope was an elusive one, and he finally started on his return to camp. End of Chapter 2 Chapter Three, Strange Experiences. Young Munson was destined to learn ultimately that he had undertaken an impossible task. The hunter, in the flush and excitement attending the pursuit of game, can form no correct idea of the distance past, and so he, in attempting to run the shadowy wolf to earth, had travelled twice as far as he supposed. The case is altogether different when the hunter starts to return. It is then that the furlongs become miles, and the wearied pursuer feels disgusted with the enthusiasm which led him so far away from headquarters. When the lad was certain that he had labored far enough on the back track to take him fully to the campfire, he really had not gone more than one half the distance. Worse than this, he saw from the nature of the ground that he was off soundings. Several times he was forced to leap over openings or rents similar to that into which he had stumbled, and the broadening out of the cave made it out of his power to confine his path to anything like reasonable limits. The appearance of unexpected obstructions directly in his way compelled numerous detours, with the inevitable result of disarranging the line he intended to pursue and causing his course to be a zigzag one of the most marked character. There were no landmarks to afford him the least guidance. In short, he was like the ill-fated steamer caught on a dangerous coast by an impenetrable fog where no observations can be made, and the captain is compelled to go it blind. He was forcibly reminded of this difficulty by unexpectedly finding himself face to face with the side of the cavern. 
when he thought that he was pursuing the right direction here was evidence that he was at least going at right angles and to all intents and purposes he might as well have been going in exactly the opposite course well things are getting mixed he exclaimed more amused than frightened at this discovery i never tramped over such a place before and if i ever get out of this i'll never try it again but there was little cause for mirth and when he had struggled an hour longer something like despair began to creep into his heart worse than all he became aware that his torch was nearly exhausted and under the most favorable circumstances could not last more than an hour longer while toiling in this manner he had continued to signal to mickey in his usual manner but with no other result than that of awakening the same deafening din of echoes by this time he was utterly worn out he had been traveling for hours or rather working for nearly every step was absolute labor so precipitous was the ground and so frequent were his detours he had accomplished nothing when he expected to find himself in the immediate vicinity of the campfire there were no signs of it and the loudest shout he could make to his friend brought no reply this fact filled the mind of fred with a hundred misgivings he had given up the belief that it was possible for mickey to remain asleep all this time he was sure the night had passed and great as was the capacity of the irishman in the way of slumber he could not remain unconscious all the time and then nothing seemed more probable than that he was placed forever beyond the power of response if a dozen indians quietly let themselves down through the opening during the darkness of the night they could easily discover the sleeping figure and dispatch him before he could make any kind of resistance it was this fear of the indians being in the cave that made the lad apprehensive every time he gave utterance to his signals he believed they were as likely to reach the ears of the apaches as those of mickey and his faith of the extraordinary shrewdness of those people was such that he did not doubt but that by some means or other they would learn the true signal with which to reply as yet however no such attempt had been made so far as his ears informed him but his misgivings were none the less on that account what was the use of their taking the trouble to answer when he was walking directly into their hands there was a cowering shrinking sensation from his own noise caused by the expectation that a half-dozen crouching figures would leap up and swoop down upon him the darkness remained impenetrable and as fred toiled forward he was continually recalling the words of byron which he had read frequently when at school and had learned to recite for his father he found himself repeating them and there was no doubt that he realized more vividly than do boys generally of his age the meaning of the author the world was void the populous and powerful was a lump seasonless herbless treeless manless lifeless a lump of death a chaos of hard clay the rivers lakes and ocean all stood still and nothing stirred within their silent depths such fancies as these were not calculated to make him feel particularly comfortable while carrying the torch such a person in such a situation makes an especially inviting target of himself 
and although Fred dreaded to see it burn itself out when the chances were that he was likely to be in sore need of the same, yet he had wrought himself up to such a pitch that he more than once meditated extinguishing it altogether with the purpose of putting himself on an equality with those of his enemies who might be prowling in the night around him. "'I wonder whether Mickey would be more likely to hear my pistol than a shout or a whistle,' he said, as he drew the weapon from his belt and held it up to inspect it in the light of the flaring torch. "'It seems to be all right, although there's no telling how long since it has been loaded. Here goes.' With this he pointed the muzzle toward the cavern and pulled the trigger. The response was as prompt as though he had charged the chamber but a short time before, proving not only that the weapon was of the best quality, but that the ammunition was equally so, and the slight moisture that characterized the atmosphere of the cave had not been sufficient to injure the charge. It seemed as if he had fired a cannon, the echoes rolling, doubling, and repeating on themselves in the most bewildering and terrifying fashion. Fred could not understand how it was that such a pandemonium of sound could escape filling the subterranean world from one end to the other, and so he sat down on a ledge of rock to listen for some reply from his friend. It was several seconds before the trickeries of nature in the way of echoes terminated and matters settled down to their natural quiet. And then, when quiet came again, it was like that of a tomb, deep, profound, and impressive. The bent and listening ear could detect nothing that could be supposed to resemble the noise of the cascade which had excited his wonder when he was stretched out upon the ground directly above it. "'This must be about forty miles round,' he said to himself, when he had waited for the reply, until convinced that it was not forthcoming, "'and I have strayed away altogether.' The luxury of rest was so great, after his long, wearying toil, that he concluded that he might as well spend a half-hour in that fashion as in any other. The echoes and pains of his bruises had departed, or more properly perhaps they were consolidated with the aches and pains following upon the overtaxing of his limbs. "'Oh, dear, how tired I am!' he sighed as he stretched out his limbs. "'It seems to me that I won't be able to walk again for a week. I must rest a while.' His fatigue was so great that he was not conscious of any desire for food or rest. "'Maybe I will need that torch more after a time than I do now,' he added, as he looked listlessly at it. "'It seems good for a half-hour yet, and I don't want it.' With this he thrust the burning end in the sand at his feet, and held it there until it was entirely extinguished, and he was wrapped again in the same impenetrable darkness. So far as possible, he had become accustomed to this dreadful state of affairs. He had been viewing and breathing the atmospheric blackness for many hours, although it may be doubted whether one who had spent so much of his life in the sunshine could ever become accustomed to the total deprivation of it. Fred had assumed an easy position where he could lay his head back, and straightening out his legs, he made up his mind to enjoy the rest which he needed so badly. When a lad is thoroughly and completely tired, it is difficult for him to think of anything else. 
and although while walking the fugitive was tormented by all manner of wild fancies and fears, yet when his efforts ceased, something like a reaction followed, and he sighed for rest, content to wait until he should be forced to face the difficulties again. When he closed his eyes, all sorts of lights danced before him, and strange indescribable noises filled the air. It seemed that impish figures were frolicking all around, sometimes grinning in his face and then scurrying away through the aisles of the gloom. At last he slept. The slumber was sweet and dreamless, carrying him through the entire night and affording him the very rest and refreshment which he so sorely needed. This sleep was nearly completed when Fred was aroused by some animal licking his face. He arose with a start of exclamation and terror, and the animal growled and darted back several feet. A pair of gleaming eyes flashed in the darkness, the same pair which he had seen before. The wolf had come back to him. Fred drew his revolver with the purpose of giving him a shot when he reflected that it would be wisdom not to kill the animal until he was forced to do it in self-defense. So he shoved the weapon back in its place, where it could be seized at a moment's warning, and sat still. In a few moments the wolf ventured softly up to him, and preparing to begin his feast. The boy, yielding to a strange whim, threw out his arms and made a grab at him. The affrighted creature made a leap to escape the embrace, and Fred grasped his tail with both hands. This made the wolf wild with terror, and away he leaped. The boy hung on, running with might and main in his efforts to keep up. The brute, not knowing what he had in tow, was only intent upon getting away, and he plunged ahead as furiously as if a blazing torch was tied to his tail. Fred was fully imbued with the spirit of the occasion, and resolved not to part company with his guide unless the caudal appendage should detach itself from its owner. The wolf was naturally much more fleet of foot, but his efforts of speed only increased that of the lad, who, still clinging to his support, labored with might and main. Away, away they went! Now he was down on his knees, then clambering up again, then banging against the rocks, still onward, until he found himself flat on his face, still holding to his support, while the wolf was clutching and clawing to get away. They were in such a narrow passageway that Fred could not rise. Unclasping one hand, he held on with the other while he worked along after him. For a long time this savage scratching, struggling, and toiling continued, and then, all at once, Fred was dazzled by the overpowering flood of light. He had escaped from the cave in the mountain, and was in the outside world again. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 Sunlight and Hope By clinging to the tail of the terrified wolf, Fred Munson had been assisted, dragged, and pulled from the Cimmerian gloom of the mountain cave into the glorious sunlight again. When the glare of light burst upon him, he let go of the queer aid to freedom, and the mystified animal scurried away with increased speed. For a time the lad was so dazed and bewildered that he scarcely comprehended his good fortune. 
His eyes had been totally unaccustomed to light for so long a time that the retina was overpowered by the sudden flood of it and required time to accommodate itself to the new order of things. A few minutes were sufficient, and then, when he looked about and saw that he was indeed outside of the cave which had been such an appalling prison to him, Fred was fairly wild with joy. It was all he could do to restrain himself from shouting, whooping, and hurrahing at the top of his voice. It was only the recollection that there were a number of Apaches near at hand that sufficed to keep his voice toned down. But he danced and swung his arms and threw himself here and there in a way that would have made a spectator certain that he was hilariously crazy. Not until he was thoroughly used up did he consent to pause and take a breathing spell, and then he gasped out as well as he could during his hurried breathing. Thank the good Lord. I knew he would not forget me. He let me hunt around for a while, long enough to make me feel I couldn't do anything, and then he stepped in. The wolf came. I didn't think I could make anything out of him, but I grabbed his tail, I held on, and here I am. Thank the good Lord again. When able to control himself still further, Fred made a survey of his surroundings. In the first place, he observed that the forenoon was only fairly under way, the sun having risen just high enough to be visible. The sky was clear of clouds, and the day promised to be a beautiful one without being oppressively warm. It is strange that I could not find the opening when the wolf scampered straight to it. However, he did not stop to puzzle over the matter. It was sufficient to know and feel that he was back again in the busy, bustling world, saved from being buried in a living tomb. An examination of the point where he had debouched from these Plutonian regions showed Fred that he was considerably below the general regions of the earth. He was in a sort of valley, surrounded by rocks and boulders, and the opening through which he had scrambled was situated sideways, so that at a distance of ten feet it could not be seen. This accounted for the fact that none of the Indians knew any other means of ingress and egress, excepting the opening in the roof of the cave. It was almost impossible to discover except by accident, or long-continued and systematic search. Fred's next thought was regarding Mickey O'Rooney, and he questioned himself as to the best means of reaching him and assisting him to the same remarkably good fortune which had attended himself. The immediate suggestion, naturally, was to re-enter the cave, and after hunting up his old friend, conduct Mickey to the outer world, but it required only brief deliberation to convince him of the utter folly of such an attempt. In the first place, should he re-enter the cave, he would be lost again, not knowing in what direction to turn to find his friend, and entirely unable to communicate with him by signal as had been their custom when separated and looking for each other. Should he venture away from the tunnel to renew his search, it was scarcely possible that he could find his way back again. He would not only lose Mickey, but he would lose himself, with not the remotest chance of finding his way into the outer world again though it was clearly apparent that, having been delivered from prison, it would not do for him to go back under any circumstances. He must remain where he was, and whatever assistance he could render his friend must be given from the outside. How was this to be done? To begin with, 
he felt the necessity of getting out of the circumscribing valley and of taking his bearings. He wished to learn where the opening through which he had fallen was situated. It was no difficult matter to work his way upward until he found himself up on a level with the main plateau. There, his view, although broken and interrupted in many directions, was quite extended in others, and his eye roamed over a large extent of that broken section of the country. He was utterly unable to recognize anything he saw, but he was confident that he was no great distance from the spot for which he was searching. It was only through the entrance that he could hold communication with Mickey, whenever the way should be left clear for him to do so. But he was fully mindful of the necessity for caution in every movement. It was not to be supposed that the Apaches, having struck what might be called a gold mine, intended to abandon it at the very time the richest results were promised. And so, after long deliberation, the boy decided upon the direction in which the opening lay, and he made toward a small peak from which, in case his calculations were correct, he knew he would see it. Strange to say, his reckoning was correct in this instance, and when he stealthily made his way to the elevation and looked down over the slope, he saw the clump of bushes covering the skylight not more than a hundred yards distant. He saw something else, which was not quite so pleasant. Six Apache warriors were guarding the same entrance. "'I wonder if they think Mickey expects to make a jump up through there,' was the thought which came to Fred as he peered down upon the savages and counted them over several times. "'I don't see what they are to gain by waiting there, unless they mean to go down pretty soon.' He could not be too careful in the vicinity of such characters, and stretching out flat upon his face, he peeped over the top taking the precaution first to remove his cap, and then to permit no more of his head than was indispensable to appear above the surface. The six redskins were lounging in as many different lazy attitudes. One seemed sound asleep, with his face turned to the ground and looking like a warrior that had fallen from some balloon and striking on his stomach, lay just as he was, flattened out. Another was half sitting and half reclining, smoking a pipe with a very long stem. His face was directly toward Fred, who noticed that his eyes were cast downward as though he were gazing into the bowl of his pipe, while Fred could plainly see the ugly lips as they parted at intervals and emitted their pulls in a fashion as indolent as that of some wealthy Turk. A third was seated a little further off, examining his rifle, which he had probably injured in some way, and which occupied his attention to the exclusion of everything else. The bushes surrounding the opening had been torn away, although it was difficult to conceive what the Indians expected to accomplish by such an act, as it only served to make them plainer targets to the Irishman whenever he chose to crack away from below. The remaining trio of Apaches were occupied in some way with the cavern. They were stretched out upon the ground, with their heads close to the orifice down which they seemed to be peering, and doing something, the nature of which the lad could not even guess. "'That don't look as though they had caught Mickey,' he muttered with a feeling of inexpressible relief. "'For if they had, they wouldn't be loafing around there.' Nothing of their horses could be seen, although he knew they must have a number of them somewhere in the neighborhood. 
an Apache or Comanche without his Mustang would be like a soldier in battle without weapons. I'd like to find them, thought Fred, lowering his head and looking back of him. I'd take one and start all the others away, and then there would be fun. The lad had it in his power to take an important step toward his return to his friends. Nothing was more likely than that a little search through the immediate neighborhood would discover the mustangs of his enemies, which, as a matter of course, were unguarded, the owners anticipating no trouble from any such source. Mounted upon the fleetest of prairie rangers, it would not require long to reach the open country when he could speed away homeward. But to do this required the abandonment of his friend, Mickey O'Rooney, who would not have been within the cavern at that minute, but for his efforts to rescue him from the same prison. It was hard to tell in what way the lad expected to benefit him by staying, and yet nothing would have persuaded him to do otherwise. "'I may get a chance to do something for him, and if I should be gone and never see him again, I should blame myself forever.' So I'll wait here and watch. The three redskins on the edge of the opening remained occupied with something, but the curiosity of the lad continued unsatisfied until one of them raised up and moved backward several steps. Then Fred saw that he had a lasso in his hand and was drawing it up from the cave. He pulled it up with one hand while he caught and looped it with the other until he had nearly a score of the coils in his grasp. This could not have been the cord which held the blanket when the shot of Mickey O'Rooney cut it and let the bundle drop, for that was much smaller. While this was sufficient to bear the weight of several hundred pounds, it having been used to lasso the fleet-footed and powerful mustangs of the prairies. "'They've been fishing with it,' concluded the youngster. "'But I don't believe that Mickey would bite. What are they going to do now?' After drawing up the rope, the whole half-dozen Apaches seemed to become very attentive. They gathered in a group and began discussing matters in their earnest fashion, gesticulating and grunting so loud that Fred distinctly heard them from where he lay. This discussion, however, speedily resulted in action. Another of the blankets already described was very artistically doubled and folded into the resemblance of a man, and then the lasso was attached to it. The Apaches experimented with it for several minutes before putting it to the test, but at last everything was satisfactory and it was launched. The Aborigines seemed to comprehend what the trouble was with the other, and they avoided repeating the error. When they began cautiously lowering the bundle, the six gathered as close to the margin as was prudent to await the result. Their interest was intense, for they had mapped out their program and much depended upon the result of this venture. But among the half-dozen there was no one who was more nervously interested than Fred Munson, who felt that the fate of Mickey O'Rooney was trembling in the balance. End of chapter 4 Read by Thomas Rose